I want to begin this morning by just saying a few words to any of you who may be a guest or a visitor. Because if this is your first encounter at Mission Road Bible Church, and this is the first sermon you've heard from this pulpit, you could walk away with some confusion. You could walk away saying, what in the world are those people about? Uh, We normally are a next verse church. We've been going through Romans for about four years now and have made it to chapter 12. We're going to be there in just a few weeks, uh, rejoining Paul in his explanation of how the gospel impacts all of life. And we just go through verse by verse. But sometimes we need to kind of pull the car over to, to explore a view, to stop and think, and to approach a subject topically by stitching different passages together, different theological nuances together to give it a full understanding and, and increase the accuracy of our Christian worldview on a particular subject. The subject we're going to be talking about today is something that I've been thinking about for literally years in discussing with you. Our leadership has talked about it countless times. I have spoken to older men and older women about this. I've spoken to younger men and younger women about this. I have heard from singles and married alike. And it's a subject that that people know about, but no one wants to talk about. Some subjects like that are interesting because God's Word says a lot about it. In fact, God's Word says enough and a lot about everything we need to do. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Paul says, whether then you eat or drink, nutrition and hydration, the most basic things in life, whether you eat or drink, do, what's the next word? All to the what? Glory of God. You know what that means? Everything in life is theological. Everything is informed by theology Everything we do expresses our theology. All of life is theological. And whether we realize it or not, everything we do reveals what we believe about God and his word. And there are a few places that that shows up more than in what we wear. Over the next few weeks... We're going to explore what God has said and what God expects regarding our clothing and modesty in particular. That's the great subject, is the subject of modesty. I was getting ready for church this morning, and uh, Kim knew that I was wrestling all week with this sermon for for a lot of reasons. And uh, I I was trying to put a lot into a one-stop sermon. And so I was struggling all week on whether this would be a one- or a two-parter. And so... um, she was asking me this morning, so is this a one or two-parter? And I said, I'm asking the question now whether it's a three or four-parter. And the reason is, it's very important. I don't know that we're going to pass by this view of God's Word again soon. And it's so important. It's so critically important to our church and to our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we need to stop and pause and think about it. So let me go back to, if you're a guest and you came in and you heard this church, you're, going, you're probably thinking, what? I went to church and they tell me about what to wear. We do more than that, but that is in the Bible, so we have to address it. Is that fair? Let me also say that you're going to leave with more questions this morning than you have answers. And that's okay. All we're going to do is lay some theological groundwork, and we'll come back in the next couple of studies and look at the the specifics. We're not even going to get into the specific passages that Paul addresses, that Peter addresses on how 
specifically a woman, and modesty is not just a feminine issue, but a woman is to adorn herself. We're going to come back and look at those specifically in the coming weeks. But I want to lay some theological groundwork and look at what are the bases, the foundations that we need to look at. Now, before we do that, I want to do something unique, and that is I want to read you a story in total by Hans Christian Andersen. It's a short story. It's going to take me about four minutes to read, so bear with me. You all know the story, but it's probably been a while since you've heard all the details of the story, but its application should be very obvious as we move through it. The Emperor's New Clothes. And if you're visiting, we do more than read Hans Christian Andersen as well. I just want to say that. Once upon a time, there lived a vain emperor whose only worry in life was to dress in elegant clothes. He changed clothes almost every hour and loved to show them off to his people. Word of the emperor's refined habits spread over his kingdom and beyond. Two scoundrels who had heard of the emperor's vanity decided to take advantage of it. They introduced themselves at the gates of the palace with a scheme in mind. We are two very great tailors, and we have many years of research. We have invented an extraordinary method to weave a cloth so light and fine that it looks invisible. As a matter of fact, it is invisible to anyone who is too stupid and incompetent to appreciate its quality. It's genius. The chief of the guards heard the scoundrel's strange story, sent for the court chamberlain. The court chamberlain notified the prime minister who ran to the emperor and disclosed the incredible news. The emperor's curiosity got the better of him and he decided to see these two scoundrels. Besides being invisible, your highness, this cloth will be woven in colors and in patterns created especially for you. The emperor gave the two men a bag of gold coins in exchange for their promise to begin work on the fabric immediately. Just tell us what you need and we'll get to get started and we'll give it to you. The two scoundrels asked for a loom, silk, gold thread, then pretended to begin working. The emperor thought that he had spent his money quite well. In addition to getting a new extraordinary suit, he would discover which of his subjects were ignorant and incompetent because only they could recognize the beauty, right? A few days later, he called the old and wise prime minister who was considered by everyone as a man with great common sense. Go and see how the work is proceeding, the emperor told him, and come back and let me know. The prime minister was welcomed by the two scoundrels. We're almost finished, but we need a lot more gold thread. Here, excellency, admire the colors, feel the softness. The old man bent over the loom and tried to see the fabric, but it was not there. He felt cold sweat on his forehead. I can't see anything, he thought. If I see nothing, that means I'm stupid or even worse, incompetent. If the prime minister admitted that he didn't see anything, he would be discharged from his office. What a marvelous fabric, he said. I'll certainly tell the emperor. The two scoundrels rubbed their hands together gleefully. They had almost made it. More thread was requested to finish their work. By the way, the thread was made of gold. Finally, the emperor received the announcement that the two tailors had come to take all the measurements needed to sew his new suit. 
Come in, the emperor ordered. Even as they bowed, the two scoundrels pretended to be holding a large roll of fabric. Here it is, your highness, the result of our labor, the scoundrel said. We have worked night and day, but at last the most beautiful fabric in the world is ready for you. And look at the colors and feel the fabric and how fine it is. Of course, the emperor did not see any colors and could not feel any cloth between his fingers. He panicked and felt like fainting. But luckily, the throne was right behind him, and he sat down. But when he realized that no one could possibly know that he did not see the fabric, he felt better. No one could find out. He was stupid, and he was incompetent. The emperor didn't know that everyone else around him thought and did the very same thing. The farce continued as the two scoundrels had foreseen. Once they had taken the measurements, the two began cutting in the air with their scissors while, the, so, while sewing with needles made, uh, making the invisible cloth. Your Highness, you'll have, to, you'll have to take off all your clothes to try on these new ones. The two scoundrels draped the new cloths on him and then held up a mirror. The emperor was embarrassed. But since none of his bystanders were there, or were embarrassed rather, he felt relieved. Yes, this is a beautiful suit, and it looks very good on me, the emperor said, trying to look comfortable. You've done a fine job. Your majesty, the prime minister said, we have, request for, uh, we have a request for you. The people have found out about this extraordinary fabric, and they are anxious to see you in your new suit. The emperor was doubtful, showing himself naked to the people, but he abandoned his fears. After all, no one would know about it except the ignorant and the incompetent. All right, he said, I will grant the people this privilege. He summoned his carriage, and the ceremonial parade was formed. A group of dignitaries walked at the very front of the processional and anxiously scrutinized the faces of the people in the street. All the people had gathered in the main square, pushing and shoving to get a better look. And applause welcomed the regal procession. Everyone wanted to know how stupid or incompetent his neighbor was. But as the emperor passed, a strange murmur rose in the crowd. Everyone said loud enough for the others to hear, look at the beautiful emperor's new clothes. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. What a marvelous train of his robe. And the colors, all the colors of that beautiful fabric. I've never seen anything like it in my life. They all tried to conceal their disappointment at not being able to see the clothes. And since no one was, admilling, was willing to admit his own stupidity and incompetence, they all behaved as the two scoundrels had predicted. A child, however, who had no important job and could only see things as his eyes showed them to him, went up to the carriage. The emperor's naked. He said, fool, his father explained, exclaimed. He reprimanded him. He ran, ran after him. Don't talk nonsense. He grabbed his child, took him away. But the boy's remark, which had been heard by the bystanders, was repeated over and over until everyone cried. The boy is right. The emperor is naked. It's true. The emperor realized that the people were right, but could not admit to that. He thought it better to continue the procession under the illusion that anyone who could not see the clothes was either stupid or incompetent. And he stood stiffly in his carriage while behind him a page 
held up the train of his imaginary suit. For some of you, this is just an interesting, old, and familiar fable. But my fear is, for others, it accurately portrays a game that's being played out in our culture that some bring into the church. The game is called modesty. Some women let the tailors at the Gap and Abercrombie and Fitch and H&M and a host of other skillful tailors construct their clothes in a similar way, presenting them to you to look how beautiful they are, only in the end to reveal a woman's nakedness. It's exactly the same. And the fools are not the tailors. The fools are the wearers. I want to tell you that I have prayed much this week about this sermon and the ones that are come. Ah, this is not fun. This is not comfortable. But it's in God's word. And so we need to address it. But I am so compelled and convinced that theology is expressed so much by what we wear that if we don't turn our attention to it, we'll just ignore it and we'll be like that crowd in the emperor's new clothes. We'll pretend that everything is okay, but intuitively all, intuitively, we all know it's not. So many ignore the revealing of nakedness and some even compliment it. But the style is not what's so alarming. I, I'm more concerned at two levels for Christians in the church. And we'll see, not so much today, but in the coming weeks, that modesty is not only a, a female issue. Men can dress immodestly, and how men respond to a woman dressing immodestly is also addressed in Scripture. First, it's grieving that some women who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, who believe the gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a wretched Roman sinful death as a sacrifice on behalf of those who believe God's message that this paid for their sins and that he rose from the dead. Some women who believe that are also believing the lie that nakedness is not an issue to be addressed in what they wear. Some believe that nakedness is, not, is only something that's perceived and it's something even to be admired. Secondly, others are afraid of the truth because they, they fear of being ignorant of the style or incompetent in the culture. You know, those people in that story were so afraid of people saying, you're behind and you don't get it, that they didn't have the courage to speak up and call nakedness what it was, and yet we have the same issue going on today. When will we, when will, when will we have the courage to say, we're seeing too much, and it needs to be addressed. Now, my challenge in the next few weeks, I don't know how long it's going to be, is to encourage you and give you a biblical worldview. This is not my opinion. This is not my ideas. I want to, we, what do we do at Mission Road? We want to say what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and no more than what the Bible says. But I think you're going to be surprised at how much the Bible discusses this issue. We have to address it. Doug Wilson has said this famous line. Many women dress like a sail at the gap. 
40% off. It's unfortunately funny because it's true. Mark Twain famously said, modesty died when clothes were born. We've talked often about this in leadership. I have spoken, as I said, to older women who are just appalled at culture and even sometimes what we see in the church. I stood right there, three yards from where I'm standing now, within the last year and spoke to a young man who began to talk to me. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, and his lip began to quiver. And he said, will you pray for me? I said, I love praying. Of course I'll pray for you. How can I pray for you? He said, it's difficult sometimes for me to come to church and see more of a woman's body than my mind wants to see. That's in our church, folks. That's under our watch. And as I said, modesty is in no way uniquely a female concern or issue. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. Let me say from the beginning, I think most of the people, most of the women in Mission Road Bible Church are exquisitely modest, wonderfully modest, an example to the church and to the world. And for that, I think all of us are grateful. You've chosen to dress in a way that honors God, that shows love and care for the men and women. We'll talk about that later around you. Furthermore, I I choose to believe that most of the women in our church want to dress modestly, and the ones who don't are, are hopefully just ignorant. I don't want to believe that someone in our beloved body of Christ would dress intentionally in a way as to arouse sexual desires in another who's not your spouse. As one of your shepherds, we have to deal with this, and we have to deal with it straight up and head on. We're going to look at it over the coming weeks. I'm going to admit I'm apprehensive, but let's just look at what God's word says. We want to be careful not to fall off on legalism, which is telling people, okay, we're going to, we, we have a ruler on how high your heels are and the hem of your skirt. That's not what we're going to do. But we have a, uh, the other side, which is libertinism, which is never addressing it. We have to find what God's word tells us about this. Nancy Lee DeMoss, who was recently married, by the way, Nancy Lee DeMoss Wilgamuth, has a list that I, I couldn't improve on. I'm just going to give it to you. And in fact, it's uh, 13 long. I, I just want to compare it. She says, this is the world's philosophy for a woman and her clothes and, and God's philosophy of a woman and her clothes. Let's just go through it very quickly. The world tells you beauty is external and physical. God says beauty is internal and spiritual. The world says the body is, an all, important, is all important and the spirit is secondary or even non-existent. The spirit, God says, is eternal, and the body is only temporary. The world says your body is your identity. The word of God says your body is a temple. It houses your soul. The world says you are a product of evolution. Your body belongs to you. God says that your body belongs to him. He bought it with a price if you're a Christian. The world says dress for people to notice you. God says dress to please him and to reflect his glory. The world says the purpose of clothing is to reveal the body and encourage sexual attraction. God's perspective is that the, bo- the purpose of clothing is to cover up and conceal the body. The world says, if you've got it, flaunt it. 
And God says, exemplify humility and modesty. The world says, highlight and draw attention to the body, the skin, and to private parts. God says, draw attention to the spirit and to the countenance and to the heart. The world says, to be loved, a woman must be beautiful and alluring. And God's perspective is that you are perfectly loved by him and sensual, designed to be a beautiful woman for his glory and for your husband. The world says the body has no worth. You can ignore and trash it. God says your body is God's home. Take care of it. The world says use the body to tempt or tease others. And God says use your body to protect, edify, and strengthen others. The world says give your body freely to others. And God's perspective is give ownership of your body to him and save your body for your spouse. What you wear is just external, says the world. What you wear reflects your heart, says God. It's a great list. So terse and so simply put. Well, for our time together, and it will be brief this morning, I want us to look at five theological fundamentals for modesty. Five theological fundamentals for modesty. And if it appears that, that, that you know, this, is this a sermon only about women? No, it's about both, but it has a particular target with women, as you know, and there will be other passages and topics in the future that have a particular target for men. The first theological fundamental for modesty is this. God made man as a spirit with a body, not a body with a spirit. Very important distinction. Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What do we find by that? Man was not a living being when he only had a body, right? He needed a, 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 a spirit. I'm speaking another language. Uh, he needed a soul. He needed a, 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 an internal mechanism to be measured by. Those are Greek words. I wasn't speaking in tongues, by the way. Um, ruach. Um, he made this body, and then he took a soul and put it in it. That body one day will decay. Some of us know more about that than others. And die. But the spirit will last forever. Paul calls, it's kind of funny, he calls this body our tent. We're just living in a tent. Someday we'll shed it and live in a permanent dwelling in heaven. And the point is this. Our bodies are temporary and our souls live forever. Where is the majority of our attention then being focused in the development of who we are? The attention we give ourselves, male or female, ought to be more directed at our soul and our character than ever toward our body. Look, bodily discipline is of some little effort, but discipline for godliness is better. And men, we need to train our own hearts to give attention to a woman's character, not merely her physical appearance. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. I hope that's the case with all of us. And then we've mentioned it already. Two of the most important verses in the Bible about a theology of modesty and dressing 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body, you have it memorized, is, a, is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have 
who's in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He treats the body as a possession to be stewarded, not the expression of who we are. Number two, this is important. We can't, fit, we can't skip over this. Number two, laying these theological foundations, God created the beauty of the human body. God created the beauty of the human body. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 16 and following. Just, just, I just want you to listen. I know you know it, but just hear it for the first time. Hear it fresh. Hear it like it was the first time. The Lord God commanded Adam, the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and if you're a young, single man, it ought to be yours. It is not good for the man to be alone. Amen, husbands? All the wives are saying, did you say amen just there? I will make a helper, listen, this is important, suitable or that fits him. Remember that. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and, and he brought all these animals to the man to see what the man would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, bull and cow, to the birds of the sky, drake and hen, to the, every beast of the field. You say, why did you say male and female? Because it says this at the end of the verse. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable that fits him. So, so picture this. It's just a perfect setup. It's a smile moment in the Bible. God sits Adam down. He's, he's fresh, he's new, he's newly created. Everything's a wonder. And he says, I'm going to bring you all the animals and I want you to name them. You're the, the regent of the earth. Here comes the cows, male and female. Here comes the fox, male and female. Birds, male and female. All these critters, male, female, male, female, male. Male, female, male, female, male. Male, female, male, 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 female, suitable, 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 alone. God was getting his attention. There, there was no one suitable to him, it says. No one who fit him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. Guys, don't take this as your way to get a wife. Just take naps. This is, there's more to it than that. Then he took one of his ribs, the first surgery, of his, uh, and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God then fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Remember, you know, uh, buck, doe, uh, cow, bull, bull, bull. And then Eve. <laughs> and you can hear him singing, one of these things is not like the other. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. As we say in the South, they were naked and unashamed. His response was, wow, there's nothing wrong with, with being a man. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to a woman. I remember when Kim came in the room, the first time I ever saw her, she came in and all the lights went down and the spotlight came on and music began to play and stars began to fall and, and there, was, there was magic dust in the air and I heard Beethoven and Mozart at the same time. And I just remember thinking, wow. I, I'm going to admit it, I was first attracted to Kim physically, she was not hard to look at. She's still not hard to look at. And the more I got to know her, I fell in love with her entire heart. But God made the human body. He, he, he made the beauty of it. Postmodern fashion should think well on this. I mean, the Bible doesn't blush. Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your, of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times, that's in the Bible, and be exhilarated always with her love. It's more than just physical, with her love. Then Solomon, good night. Solomon, he, he's so attracted to the, the, the Shulamite woman in the Song of Solomon. Now guys, th this, might be, this might be helpful to you in complimenting your wife, and, and you might want to stay away from some of this, but Solomon looked at his wife and said, your navel is like a round goblet. Okay. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. I just can't imagine coming home. Anyway, <laughs> this is solid. This is God's word. Your neck is a tower of ivory. I love this. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Doesn't that just sound pretty? Heshbon. It's actually the pools that they would take uh, baths in. They're very clean pools. <laughs> Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. I'm assuming it was a beautiful tower. <laughs> your head crowns you like Carmel. The flowing locks over your head are like purple threads. Your teeth are like a flock of little ewes. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. I've given my, my, my wife many compliments before, but I've never looked at her forehead, her, her temples, and gone, pomegranates. But anyway. <laughs> how about this, guys? Her, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? And then he even says, the curves of your hips are like jewels. God intended for the body to be beautiful and enjoyed in the context of marriage and in the context of marriage alone. Ladies, God has, has given you what the Bible calls delights that are to be shared only with your husband. Please don't dress in such a way as to allow men to enjoy them with their imaginations. We'll come back to that next time. Number three, God intends that clothing conceal nakedness. God intends that clothing conceal nakedness. Now, for this, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. You know Genesis 3. That's the fall of man. But listen carefully to the details of this passage again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's just interesting, it just 
He just starts talking to the woman. There's no footnote, no side reference in the Bible. The snake just starts talking to this woman. Nobody seems alarmed. And she starts talking back, and no one seems surprised. Paul believed this, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 says as well. The serpent says, Indeed, has God said you shall eat from any, shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent has said to the woman then, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband, where was he? With her. And he ate. Then don't forget Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they made clothes. They sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. Don't miss the fact that the very first human recognition of guilt and sin was that of immodesty. That's a powerful insight. Their first response was not, we listened to the snake, we disobeyed. Their first response was, I'm naked. I I need to be covered. You want the whole series in one sentence? Here it is. God, by the way, those those were enough to cover their nakedness, but not enough to cover their sins, so he gives them animal skins. What do you have to do to an animal to get its skin? You kill it. There was a sacrifice to cover their shame and nakedness. Do you see that? It's beautiful. God intends, here it is, God intends and has always intended for clothing to conceal nakedness and the world wants to convince you that clothing is to reveal nakedness. It's really simple. God intended for clothing to conceal our nakedness. Number four, and remember, this is just laying the foundation. We're going to come back specifically to some of these things in our next study. Number four, God has created a place for the enjoyment of nakedness. We have to say this. God has created a place for humans to enjoy nakedness. It sounds kind of odd, except when you read Hebrews 13, 4. The marriage bed is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be purified, undefiled. And you say, what is he talking about? He tells us by the qualification, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, the experience of sexual intimacy and the enjoyment of nakedness is to happen between a husband and a wife in marriage. And it's to be held in honor among all men. Though none of you ladies I know would ever consider dressing like a fornicator or an adulterer, my fear is that you'll follow the world that teaches us how to become a mental prostitute. In other words, inviting By the way we dress, the way you dress, 
inviting men to explore the nuances of your nakedness and body, even to imagine unmentionable things. Now, you may be thinking, ah, oh, my palms are sweating. This is not good. Why are we talking about this? This is such a modern problem. Except when you go back to the 16th century, Pastor Richard Baxter spoke to the young women in his church about dressing in a way that would be attractive sexually to the young men. This is what he said. This is in the uh, 16th century. You must not, ladies, you must not lay a stumbling block in the young men's way, nor blow up the fire of lust, nor make your ornaments, your dress, snares, but you must walk among sinful persons as you would holding a candle among straw or gunpowder, lest you see the flame which you would not foresee when it's too late to quench it. This is the 16th century. This is nothing new. I'm not the only pastor who ever said, we should probably talk about this as a church. Richard Baxter was doing it. There's a place for this fire and it's marriage, the marriage bed. To mess around with it outside of marriage is nothing else but to be burned and to burn others. And number five, lastly, you know this. God always sees external actions as the results of the heart. He always sees external actions as the results of the heart. This is the launching pad for the next few studies, a few weeks we're going to be looking at this. It's so easy to judge or be judged by externals, isn't it? Have you not been wrongly judged by externals at some level in your life? And have you not wrongly done so? And yet, that's the first place we make judgments about one another. We have to remember the context of beauty. Proverbs 31 talks about it. It says, Proverbs 31, verse 30, charm is a lie. Charm is deceitful. And listen to this. Beauty is, you know the verse? Vain. Vain is the same word in Ecclesiastes for habel. It's, it's, it's the Hebrew word habel, useless. Temporary. It's there for a moment and it's gone. Beauty is vain. And you say, well, then what are you left with? But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Even more graphically, and Solomon wrote this, ladies, I, I didn't, okay? Just want to say, but it's really funny. Proverbs eleven twenty two, As a ring of gold and the nose of a pig, as a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And under, underneath that, that idea of discretion is modesty, who lacks making good decisions. So it's like, it's like taking a, a gold ring and, and piercing it to a pig's nose and thinking that that makes a difference. The heart issues involved with dressing immodestly are simply laid out in 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And as we'll see, let's, let me give you the, the antidote now that's going to trace its way through these next few sermons. The antidote, the, the cure, the answer is Humility. It's humility. Acting best for the people around you and not promoting yourself in any way. That, that's humility. And please know, 
Ladies, please know, I am not, nor will we ignore in the next few weeks the responsibility of men to guard their eyes and imagination. There will be more on that next time. It's just a, an encouragement here to, to see that God says a lot about modesty and theology of clothing. We can say it this way. The gospel itself, the very gospel we believe, is attached to our clothes. M- men and women, we'll come to that. There's, there's appropriate clothing for different activities. The gospel is at stake. If Jesus died to purchase our souls, what's 1 Corinthians 6 say, and bodies, then listen, ladies, when you, when you dress in the morning and you look in the mirror, you are not dressing yourself. You are dressing the body bought by the living God. He owns it. And the same goes for any man. When we put on our clothes, we're wearing more than fabric. We're wearing our theology. This has particular application, not just for the women in our church, but it does for the men as well. Fathers, husbands. About six years ago, I took my son to school, public high school. It was his first day at Hart High School in Santa Clarita, California. And where, we, where I dropped him off, it, it's like a horseshoe. Aaron, you know that school very well. You drive in, there's a drop-off place, and then you drive out another direction. So I was in line. It was kind of a long line. And parents would drop off kids, or, and they would get out and go, go, go. Then it got to my turn, and where I was stopped was direct, directly in front of a crosswalk. So the, the school officer stopped me, and I let Luke out to go. And, and he's... These three girls were walking across the crosswalk. If I were to describe to you the length of their shorts, the tightness of them, the nature of their necklines, and the tightness of their tops, I think it would defile this sacred desk. They crossed and Officer said, come on through. And I just panicked. I just let my boy go in a school full of these sites. And before you say, well, that's why you shouldn't go to public school, don't go there. Just go to the plaza and walk around. You know what my first thought was? Where are these girls' dads? Did they see? Did they see what I, what I saw? Did, were they aware of this? Unfortunately, some probably were and were proud of it. As we go through this series, as a Christian father and a Christian husband, these issues have to do with our leadership in the home. And you will not win popularity awards on this earth for those decisions, but you will win the approval of God in heaven for these decisions. Who's making them for you? We're going to be probably more specific than you're comfortable with in the coming weeks.
But if you're wearing your theology when you put your clothes on, we better make sure our theology is biblical and accurate. True? True? 